It's Something for Nothing, the Rush Fancast. Jerry and Steve with you. Jerry, we're going back to the year 1987 today. We are? We are. I got to grow up my mullet? <laughs> the year we graduated high school when Hold Your Fire came out. That's right. The Halcyon days. The Halcyon days. You can find us on Twitter. We are at Rush Fancast. Instagram, find us at The Rushcast. Email Jerry, therushcast at gmail.com. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Lex, of course, the bass intro and outro. He's amazing as usual. And Jer, back on episodes 93, 94, 95, and 96, we talked about Power Windows. For the second time. For the second time. And we had a different guest on each time to talk about a different song. Yeah, and I think it came out great. We got a lot of good feedback about that. Yes, and we decided to do it again. This time, we're going to do it with Hold Your Fire. We're going to have 10 different guests to talk about each song on Hold Your Fire, and I think it's going to be great. Yeah, I wonder if we can we can probably maintain this podcast indefinitely if we just keep going over the albums again and again and again with different guests every time. Yeah, and the great thing about it is talking about these songs again, it feels like I didn't talk about them before because we just discovered so many new things. Well, that and I forget almost everything I say as soon as it comes out of my mouth. So for me, it's a different issue. Well, here's something you're going to forget. The email for today, right after you read it. Let's hear it. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, it's a good email. This is from David. He is writing to us to answer a question that we had that we never answered. Oh, cool. Thanks, David. And this is about the Montreal Canadiens being called the Habs. And we were wondering what Habs meant. Oh, right. And Tony Salzano, our guest, we thought he could tell us and he couldn't. He didn't tell us, no. (laughs) He didn't know the answer. So he says, hello from Montreal. Regarding the Montreal Canadiens, also known as the Habs, Habs is short for habitant, which means habitant and is a reference to the French who settled in New France at the time. When hockey became popular and a league was formed in the 1900s, the Montreal Canadiens, is that how you pronounce that? Canadiens or is it Canadiens? Yeah, I think it's Canadiens. Okay. So what you said were the Francophone team and the Montreal Wanderers were the Anglophone team. So eventually the Montreal Canadiens became the only Montreal team as the NHL Professional League formed. So the nickname was created as the years progressed, but I don't know exactly when. Just like we have nicknames for nationalities. Canadians are called Canucks. Americans are known as Yanks, Brits, there's Kiwis, etc. And Getty is a big Habs fan. Oh, really? I didn't know that. So that's, that's the email explaining what Habs means. Thanks, David. We appreciate you filling us in. So, Jar, as I mentioned, we're going to be talking about Hold Your Fire for the next what, five episodes, I think? Is that what we're going to do? Five episodes? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Two songs an episode. You're right. Wow. And we're going to start, of course, with track one, Force 10. Just like pride. 
Our first guest on this album-long odyssey is someone we've had on many times before, and we couldn't break down an album without having this man, musician, educator, performer, and composer, and longtime friend of the podcast, Nathan Santos. Welcome back to the Rush Fancast. Thanks. It's great to be back. Always love to be on here with you guys. It's always a fun time. Looking forward to this. Indeed. So we like to start out with a quote, and I've got one from Getty Lee. This is from Rockline, 1987. Force 10 was more or less an afterthought in the writing stage. We took two months to do all of our writing and pre-production, you know, preparation for the making of the record. We had nine songs and we had a day and a half left of time booked before we were supposed to leave and get ready to make the record. And our producer and all of us were pushing for 10 tracks on the album. And some lyrics had been submitted to us by a friend of ours, Pi Dubois, who co-wrote Tom Sawyer with us in years gone by. And Neil was able to put some of his own thoughts to one of the songs that he had and present it to us in the morning of the last day that we were there. And we loved the results. So we got together and brainstormed for about two or three hours, and we had Force 10. So the last song created for this record. How crazy is that? Yeah, well, these guys are, are geniuses, and it shows that they can, uh, they can throw together things at the last minute and still make it sound like everything kicks butt. They're going to start out the album with that kind of fire, <laughs> that kind of energy. It's great to see that they can put that together so quickly. Also, it's a testament to their experience. You know, the, these guys have been doing it for uh, 12 albums by this point, and they know what they need to do. You know, They have their formula. They work it out, and it's a great tune. Yeah, I don't know whether to be angry at that quote or happy at that quote. Because just like, come on, man, you wrote this song in two hours? Give me, <laughs> give me a break, man. Jeez, putting everybody else to shame. This is such a great way to start off this album. It's such a great great song it really is you know I, I think also they had the advantage of already formulating their their themes and their sound so to, to come up with something much like an overture to start out the whole album you know often composers will compose the introductions or the overtures last after everything has already been established and so it ends up becoming uh, something that you know, they're already gathering material that they've used um, and they can put it together, you know, pretty quickly. Can you talk a little more about that? Is Does this song have like musical motifs that are on most of the other songs? Well, you know, I, I went through the entire album just to check, you know, in preparation for this, I made sure that I was listening for things much more closely to, to back up some of my ideas. And I know that thematically in his lyrics, there are things that pop up. Um, I do know also that their style that they used throughout this album was something that was very unified. And, you know, the use of Andy Richards on keyboards and Peter Collins, I'm sure they all had uh, quite a bit of, of input in making the sound much more of a, of a total product from beginning to end. And I have analyzed all the tunes and found that modality is a big part of this and it may be i suspect there's you know people are critical of this album and a lot of people say it's the keyboards but i think a lot of it has to do with you know by this point in pop music 
the blues aspect that you heard, you know, even the first couple of their albums had changed. And, you know, what was in vogue at that time was much more of the kind of the British melodicism and modality that was a part of music at the time. And you think about the police and uh, all those British bands, and there was very tuneful melodies and the harmonies were much less bluesy, if you want to put it that way. So I think that being said, there, there are musical ideas that do resurface. And I'm not sure if those were intended or if it's just a, a matter of like, for example, Alex Lifeson using uh, different kinds of arpeggiated patterns with open strings that happen to, you know, use the same kind of voicings here and there. It does, as I said before, present a kind of a unity of the entire sound. So I, I would say that there are things that they did bring back consciously, but I'm sure there's other things too that just, you know, kind of evolved. And um, I, I, it's the reason why I love the album personally. Um, I know people are critical of it, but I really love the, the album. Now, my grasp on musical theory is as tenuous as my grasp on most things. So what exactly is modality that you're talking about? Well, modality is, is um, really dealing with one particular scale. And the idea is you have seven different star starting points of that scale. So if you're emphasizing one note over the other, which ends up becoming what we call the tonic of the scale, then different colors end up being emphasized. Like, for example, in the case of this song, we're hearing a lot more Dorian in their music. Dorian is the second scale of the of the major scale. Actually, can you hear that scale? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The emphasis of this that that color there is used quite a bit in his melodies. You can hear it right away, and I mean those are those are sounds that were used quite a bit in the early 70s, but as I said, we got away from it because people were emphasizing more bluesy type of sounds. So I think that the modes were built out of the Greco-Roman era and continually to be reinforced through the, the whole Catholic era of the early Roman times. So those are the kind of things that uh, people were getting back to at the end of the 19th century, and because of the use of the guitar, they were using that more and more in even jazz music of the late 1950s and 60s, and rock and roll ended up uh, using that a lot too. I don't know if that's something that helps you understand it, but it really is just the same seven notes of the scale with very little use of outside notes. So it gave it a little bit more of a, a color rather than you know an attitude, if, if that makes any sense. Now you mentioned jazz, Nathan, and the thing that jumps out at me about this song is the bass chords that Getty is using, which is the first time he's used bass chords, I believe on a rush record. He does it on this song and on turn the page. And he said he was influenced by Jeff Berlin, who is a, an amazing jazz bassist. Do you hear the influence of Jeff on this song? Well, he's using open fifths and he did do that in red Barchetta. And there were other places where it was implied like these power chords. And that's really what Getty Lee was doing there. I do know what he was referencing because uh, Jeff Berlin put out his his Champion album and his Pump It album right before this album, and Jeff Berlin was was writing music that was basically using the four strings and playing actual 
you know, all kinds of, of jazz-like chords on there. Jefferlyn did a, a copy of Dixie on one of his albums. So Getty was getting blown away by that. And I think the no, this is not a slight to Getty Lee, but, you know, the stuff that Jeff Berlin was doing was, was much more sophisticated and, and polyphonic. Getty was using open power chords. So, yeah, I do understand, you know, what he was going for and probably was influenced by that experimentation. But he also had to make sure it wasn't going way off the reservation in terms of the style. He wasn't going to be using all kinds of extended chords like that, like Jeff Berlin did. How would you characterize this opening song compared to some of the other opening songs on other Rush albums? Does it have a different kind of feel than some of the previous albums? And is that just because of the keyboards or do you think that the band is trying to go in a completely different direction? Well, you know, ironically, I know the last time that I was on to do this was analyzing Big Money and it had the same kind of, of feel to that in terms of the, the bigness of the keyboards and even um, some of the melodic ideas the form and that kind of thing, which again, I don't mind. I look at this stuff uh, from the point of a craftsmanship, you know, how Rush is putting the material together, the arrangements and the orchestration. I know there's criticism about being put into an era of, of artificiality and synthesis, and a lot of keyboards and things like that. But I just get blown away when I look at the entire album as a whole and I'm analyzing all these tunes about the craftsmanship that um, these guys bring to the music. There's so many subtle things like Getty Lee will play the melody on his bass, you know, during the instrumental portion in the middle. So, you know, these melodies are still there as motifs, you know, throughout, even though they're not singing them. A lot of times we'll use them and, you know, in, in places like Prime Mover and things like that, you'll still hear the same guitar riff and even the drums. So it's going throughout, and I know they t discuss it, but those are things sometimes that are missed if you're just paying attention to the lyrics only or, you know, whatever. But um, it's just, you know, amazing what these guys have been able to do. And I know a lot of it is by that point they were pretty experienced and wanted to go into the, the studio and use the studio as their, their palette and really make sure that they had a, a statement that was really formidable. And I think they were pretty successful with this album. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of times you would think a band would get to such a, a high point and kind of stall out at, you know, some level. But it seems, especially with this song, even in, in contrast to the rest of the album, because some of the songs are kind of slow on the rest of this album, but this one, you know, kicks things off in a high gear, like you said. Right. So, you know, that they could just come in at the last minute and kind of pull this whole song together is quite a feat. Yeah, and, and also it uh, shows that they've been saving up ideas that they can pull out, you know, like using Pai Dubois' poetry and crafting something fairly quickly. Um, and again, if, if they're thinking, well, this has to be an album opener, maybe they didn't think that, um, but they were using the same kind of thematic material. I think putting limitations on yourself helps you be even more creative. So if they knew it had to be something that was consistent with all the other material, then they were limiting themselves. But I think that sometimes we're talking about time as one of the themes. If they know they're against it and having to put together a piece of music, then sometimes that spurs higher creativity than just sitting around and, oh, let's see what we'll come up with, um, which is very important too. But, you know, if you're up against it, against the clock, sometimes that makes you 
uh, the most energetic in putting together something. So what do you say we break down the lyrics of this song, guys? What do you think? Let's go for it. Let's give it a shot. Tough times demand tough talk, demand tough hearts, demand tough songs, demand thoughts. Jerry. Well, this song is a, it's a little hard for me to decipher. I'm not exactly sure if it's as straightforward, as clear as a lot of other songs. But that could also be because of Pai Dubois. Mm-hmm. He is consistently, the songs that he has contributed to consistently are to me, some of the more inscrutable ones. So I'm not exactly sure what this song is about other than maybe adversity. Do you know what I mean? How people respond to the different pressures of life, right? Because we go from rising and falling like empires, flowing in, in, in and out like a tide, be vain and smart, humble and dumb. These are all opposites. Again, playing with, with opposites, which Neil has done many times in the past. Do you agree, Nathan? Yeah, I, I think uh, a lot of this is trying to communicate the intensity of our primitive human instincts and behaviors. And they're using, you know, the primal elements throughout the entire album. But this is, of course, invoking hurricanes, you know, high winds, just talking about sound and being open to, you know, having our senses open to everything and making sure that we're paying attention and we're not taking anything for granted. I know uh, there was an interview by Neil who was talking about how he and Getty were sitting around talking about getting messages from people about having some regret about not doing things that they wish they had done when they were younger. And, you know, that kind of brought on time standstill. And I imagine this is all about not getting to the point where you're regretting not acting. Uh, this is, you know, reacting to everything that you see and trying to, to you know, play a part in uh, everything that's going on around you. Could it be that the storm is kind of a metaphor for life? We're kind of like sailing through the winds of life and overcoming things like the eye of the storm. You know, I was thinking about it too. These guys were all in their early thirties. So you're beyond that youthful, you know, almost naivete. You're getting into, you know, young adulthood and trying to contemplate your impact on things. I know you guys had a discussion earlier in your podcast about how you felt that these albums had kind of a, a sequence to them where younger albums, you know, that were, were displaying them in their younger years. And as time went on, you know, they were the wisdom of, of and the energy of being older uh, starts coming through. And also they're talking about maybe younger generations who are coming up, which would have been us. You know, they were commenting on seeing the energy that we were bringing to culture and would open up and explode during the grunge era, not too long after this. But I think this is a lot of this is commentary on, on cycles and, and the way that the younger people are bringing, you know, that kind of primitive instinct to things. Yeah. And the thing to remember too, is when you look into the eye of the storm, you know, the eye of the hurricane is famously a very calm, serene place that in the right. center where everything is, is swirling around it and destroying everything, it's, there's a blue sky, the weather is perfect. And if you're going to go look into the eye of the storm, you have to look past all of the crazy weather and see a place where it's calmer and you know a place where maybe you can react better than in the storm itself. Yeah. You know, I had a my, my very first day, my master's degree down at the University of Miami, Florida, was the day of Hurricane Andrew. 
So I have a little bit of unique perspective on what it's like to to feel uh, the eye passing overhead. <laughs> right. It's weird, right? Yes. Woof. Woof. That was a ter- terrifying night. Yeah, I can imagine. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I that's another reason why a lot of this music I relate to so much, um, not only because it came out when, you know, we were all being strongly influenced by, you know, Rush at, at our age at that time, but also a lot of things we're talking about. We were just becoming college age people and starting to see everything that was going on in the world and, you know, just trying to figure out our place in it too. That's right. A couple more phrases from the lyrics that Jerry, we may have mentioned these the first time we talked about this song, but, but worth mentioning again, a couple of the phrases that I like attack the day, like birds of prey is a great one. Right. Or scavengers undercover. Oh yeah. So you can either, you can either go after the day, you know, or you can wait until everybody else has had their turn and then come in and get the things that you need and then slink off. Yeah, go for it right away. Right. Mm -hmm. And I found a quote uh, from Neil. This is from Rush Vault about the line, cool and remote like dancing girls in the heat (laughs) of the beat and the lights. Yeah, that's the one line. I I don't know how that ties into the rest of the song so um, i can't wait for this explanation this is going to be great this is from road show neil says it's an appreciation for the few females that come to rush shows and their attempts to dance to the band's music i always love to see females in the audience singing along or air drumming or even dancing however given the complexity and constant changes in our music even their dancing had to be absorbed in the music no mindless twitching to a metronomic beat in our song Force 10, I had expressed my appreciation for that absorption. There you go. <laughs> yes, it's, it's very cerebral stuff. It's not yeah. like just dancing to, you know, four on the floor. Um, right. But at the same time, they were there demonstrating how the music was affecting them. So, again, they were allowing themselves to act and ex- allowing themselves to, to be absorbed by the music, which Neil was finding that, I'm sure, quite flattering. <laughs> right. And musically, another great thing about this song is that the chorus, when he talks about, you know, looking into the eye of the storm, the music kind of calms down. Mm -hmm. It becomes a little more placid and kind of, I don't know how to describe it exactly. I'm sure you, Nathan, you can, you can describe it much better than I ever could, but you know what I'm talking about, right? It just becomes like you're sitting there and things are finally out of the way and, and you can relax a little bit. Absolutely. And the last time that it happens, towards the end of the song, the very last time they, they used that statement, actually you, you hear the bass starting to, to pedal much more frantically, which it hadn't been doing throughout the whole song. Getty would just hit the beginning note of every chord change. And at that last statement, you hear the bass underneath pedaling and it explodes to the end of the song which is a really great, again, you know, these, these guys are amazing composers and, and uh, orchestrators and arrangers, and they know how to build tension and build energy, and especially toward a big climax where that jackhammer sound comes mm-hmm. back at the very end, like it did in the beginning. Right. And one more lyrical element, rising, falling at force 10, we twist the world and ride the wind. Just going along with it wherever life takes us, right? Uh, hopefully. That's right. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't happen every day. <laughs> yeah. when, you can, when you can catch the wind, 
you know, that's when, that's when it's good. But sometimes, you, you know, you don't catch the wave, you don't catch the wind, and you're, you're in the storm. So what can you do? And again, it's all about hold, holding fire, too, you know, making sure that you're keeping that inspiration there in your, in your, your palm and using it uh, rather than letting it go. Right. And regretting it. That's right. Well, speaking to you, Nathan, we are very inspired. Thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your thoughts on Force 10. Always love being with you guys and went back and listened to the first time you guys went through this. And I'm glad that you're going through it with a little bit more of a fine tooth comb. And, (laughs) you know, you guys have come quite a way since those first couple of, of podcasts. So congratulations and keep going. Thank you so much, Nathan. Appreciate it. Okay. Look forward to the next time. So Jared, Nathan always brings fantastic ideas to the table and he knows way more about Force 10 than we could ever know. Yeah. It's really good to get like a musical interpretation of Rush songs because we don't really (laughs) dive into the music that much. Certainly not the way that he can. Well, that brings us to track two on Hold Your Fire, Jer, and it is Time Stand Still. out with time stand still we've got someone else who knows quite a bit about music sergeant first class in the u.s army band you remember joe they did this amazing amazing cover of time stand still that went viral shortly after neil peart's death back in february of 2020 tim whalen welcome to the rush Fancast. great to be here you guys what a pleasure Pleasure is ours. We'd like to start out, Tim, by asking this question. What is your Rush origin story? When did you first hear Rush and how did you become a fan? Well, I think my first memory, so I have two older brothers. My oldest brother, Peter, he was into Rush, but he was also more into slightly more Earth, Wind and Fire. And he got, but he's into Tom Petty and a different thing. My, my brother, Mark, was into Kiss, Van Halen, and a little more of the, the hard rock stuff. But they were both into Rush. So my first memory that I can think of was we went to a wedding. And I'm from Milwaukee. We went to a wedding in Mason City, Iowa, when I was like six, maybe. And uh, 
I was listening to All the World's a Stage on a boombox with headphones on in the van, just blasting it in my headphones. I definitely remember loving the drum solo at the end of Working Man. I immediately loved Bastille Day. I remember that. But then I, I just always loved, you know, ladies and gentlemen, the professor on the drum kit. You know, just <laughs> yeah. always stuck with me as a six-year-old. And then just from there, I just, you know, definitely permanent waves and moving pictures. I really, rem- I remember my, my brother bringing that home from the record store. Like I remember him putting moving pictures on the turntable and hearing Tom Sawyer and hearing Limelight. And then really just from that, that point on, you know, just being in grade school, I used to air drum to exit stage left on my parents' couch cushions in the, in the basement. I would literally put the whole double LP on and play along to it as if I was Neil. And then it just, you know, I started buying records with my own lawn mowing money. And so really just, I think it was a result of my older brothers, you know, just having the records around and uh, kind of fell in love immediately. Then I kind of fell away from it. I got more into just other types of music and I, and I'm a jazz pianist and a composer. So I started getting into that a little bit. And then when Presto came out, when I was a sophomore in high school, the rush thing got reignited because a bunch of my high school friends started getting into rush. I was like, well, I was in the rush a long time ago. And <laughs> so then when Presto came out, that was the first time I saw him live. And ever since then, I've seen him twice on every tour. That kind of that period re- kind of reignited it for me, and I never kind of went away. And then, you know, as you guys know, that first Rush concert experience, whether it's real or not, it's it's like it's like mythical in a way. You know, when I saw him, it was pouring rain. It was outside of Alpine Valley, outside of the Milwaukee, Chicago area, and this is like a classic way to see a band for the first time. You know, we're all so excited. Literally, when Force Ten started it stopped raining. <laughs> it's like, Oh, this is, you know, incredible. But I remember there was a lot, there was fog everywhere. Cause it was really humid and the lasers going through the fog. So that's always a good memory. So kind of just grew up with it because of my brothers. And then I just went with it on my own. And when did you seriously start getting into music on your own? Like I said, you're playing piano, but you also sing, obviously. When did that start to happen in your life? Right around sixth grade. I always had an an ear for it growing up. I didn't ever take formal lessons as a kid or anything like that, but I seemed to have like I had a I had an understanding of how songs were put together. Maybe it's just because I listen I listened to records all the time growing up. You know, that's the benefit of having older brothers. And I just think subconsciously I was learning about how music got put together. You know, I remember I was listening to Van Halen in 1984 when it came out as a fourth grader. And I remember realizing, oh, there's a band playing and then there's somebody singing on top of it. And I just like innately understood there was like layering going on or whatever it was. So around sixth grade, I I started tinkering around in my neighbor's piano and I was kind of able to figure out stuff he was playing. I was learning it by ear. So I, I got this, my, my grandfather got me this little 49 key keyboard. I just started learning songs by ear. Beatles songs, uh, TV commercials, they'll make little songs up. You know, it had like the little rhythm section backing track. You, could, <laughs> you know, it had like, you press like a note right. and it would be like a chord that would play with a drum beat. And then I just, 
it just kind of, you know, as you know, Getty said, I never chose music. It chose me in a way. That's kind of how I feel. I just, I never really made a choice that I wanted to do it. It's just something I started doing and I loved. And as I got more into it, I got more serious about it. And it was just all kind of a real natural thing. I started a band in high school. We played Limelight. We played Tom Sawyer. And we played Closer to the Heart, Spirit of Radio. Every original song we wrote sounded like it could have been on like permanent waves or, you know, <laughs> listening to this band really helped me be a musician. Like so many other people you hear about, you know. And then I just kept getting deeper into the well and I eventually discovered jazz and Chick Corea and all those other great musicians. And so I started just, I couldn't really get enough of it, you know. So ever since sixth grade it's been that that journey and i started on voice i guess i guess i should say i i didn't know how to read music at all i learned how to read music in high school i ended up getting a scholarship to the university of wisconsin to study voice but that only lasted a year i couldn't couldn't get enough of just wanting to learn how to play that piano so i ended up switching to like a jazz studies major in undergrad and i got a master's degree in jazz piano performance at the Manhattan School of Music. And then I just just kind of worked as a professional musician. And since I was basically a freshman in college, and I've been kind of going ever since. Tell us how the United States Army Band uh, got started. Now, did it exist before you joined, or did you put that together? Tell us about that. No, so it's the, the Army Band has a really rich history, kind of a misunderstood history if you're not part of it. So I'll, I'll just explain a little bit how it works. You know, each branch of the military has a music program. There are bands all over the country and all over the world. You know, there's bands stationed in Germany and there's been bands in Korea and Japan throughout America. Uh, and that's all the branches. You know, I don't know as much about the other branches, but I'm stationed, as they say, where I work in Washington, D.C. And they, the bands in the D.C. area are called special bands, or some people call them the premier bands. Normally, when you join the military, you go to a recruiter and say, hey, I want to be in the army. And then through a series of tests and interviews and a whole process you go through, they'll basically say, here's a job that we think you'd be good at. But with the special bands, and that even works that way with the, they call them the field bands, the bands that are out all over the country. A lot of times you'll go to a recruiter and say, are there openings in a band? do all that but the the premier bands are a little different and you actually go to dc you audition so i auditioned for it's called downrange it's the pop rock it's kind of a popular music group basically plays like a rock band and you win the audition and then you go to the recruiter and say hey i, I got offered this job i need to go through basic training basically <laughs> because it is an active duty position but i'm stationed at Fort Myer, where we work in Virginia and DC for my whole career. We don't move around. So our particular band, Pershing Zone, has this is actually our hundredth year. This is our centennial year. So we've been they've been doing this for a hundred years. And within our organization, there is a, a full jazz big band, there's a string orchestra, there's a chorus, there's a concert band. There's ceremonial band, which does all the funerals uh, in Arlington Cemetery, which is basically right across from our parking lot. And then our, our group, it's a pop rock group. So it's a, it's a very rich history. We basically serve the D.C. area. 
We do stuff at the White House, the Vice President, the State Department, and then we'll do normal gigs around town as well. You know, we'll play festivals or maybe travel once in a while. But yeah, it's a, it's a rich history. And the musicianship there is just incredible. It's, it's really a pretty cool thing. Now, are you the resident Rush fan <laughs> in the band? So that when, you know, the sad news of Neil's passing happened, were you the person who was like, we have got to do a Rush tribute song? Yeah, so there are definitely Rush fans in the band. I'm certainly known as one. When we did the tribute, actually, a couple of the string players, they volunteered because they, they are also fans. Yeah, I originally wasn't sure about whether I, I should approach our public affairs about it. You know, when we have a project, we kind of start there. But then I was like, I think this could be really cool, you know? And so, yeah, I was, I just basically contacted, you know, Jen Malley, who's our public affairs person. I said, I think this could be a really cool thing for us to do. And it, it falls into exactly what we do. I mean, we're basically, we're kind of the bridge from what we do to the public. You can kind of put a certain face that people can relate to, you know, music is very much powerful that way. So yeah, that was, that was my idea for sure. And they went with it, which was great. Now, why the song Time Stands Still? Does that have special meaning for you as a soldier? Well, I was actually originally going to do Available Light. Oh, wow. That would have been great. I was one of Steve's <laughs> favorite songs. Love that Steve song. Steve loves Available Light. I think I'm actually going to do it next year. Oh, that would be great. I, it might be on my own. I'm not sure. But so I had actually started kind of putting a little demo of that together. It wasn't exactly like, the original, but it was certainly much more of an kind of electric. There were, there were going to be drums. So then I, I stopped and I, I, I really, right away, I realized I did not want to have drums on whatever we did because everybody knows about Neil as a drummer. We all know his contributions as a drummer. Even if you're not a Rush fan, you either know about John Bonham a lot of times or Neil Peart. Then I just started thinking, for a second, I was like, I wonder if tears would be cool. And I was like, no. And then I just, time standstill has always resonated with me. I remember being in high school, some friends, some classmates died in a car accident. And that, that was a very powerful message in that song. And then I just, even events in my own life and people that I care about. I mean, that song is, is so universal in so many ways. And then I thought, you know, how could it tie into what, soldier would would do and i thought about people that deploy that leave their families that message is so is so strong in that of just holding on to things and having to let things go and so the lyrics really resonated so i decided okay this has got to be it and then uh, i was just kind of off to the races at that point that's an interesting um thing you brought up because even though i've heard the the cover a number of times I guess it, it really didn't strike me that the drums were absent or that they would be an actual reason to have the drums absent so you could focus on the lyrics. That's a, that's a really interesting choice. I love that. Yeah, because I, the thing about Neil for me, I never knew Neil, obviously, but that's the first time I ever like cried when somebody that I admired died. I really had to examine why, like, why is this affecting me so much? And I, I realized that 
it wasn't his drumming. I mean, of course I loved his drumming, you know, but it was his whole outlook on life that was really inspiring to me. And I realized how much of that was in me growing up, having integrity and sticking to your guns and, you know, his whole, you know, what's the most excellent thing I can do today? All of these nihilisms that, uh, that was another reason for Time Stands. I think that song, more than a lot of songs he's written, and many of them do, but this one especially, it really, it showcases his heart. He's really letting us see his heart. That's how I view that song. I just felt like the words really needed to be front and center over anything else. I mean, at this point in their career, you know, the, the Hold Your Fire album is a incredibly personal album, more personal lyrically than any real album before that. And at one point, I think Neil said that, you know, he wasn't going to write personal songs. Do you know what I mean? Like he just mm-hmm. wasn't there, but something like broke in him. Yeah. And, and the flood waters came out and he could write a song like this as a man in his thirties right. growing up, you know, and he's, he's in his thirties now there's, there's children involved, there's wives involved and he's on the road all the time. And you get a song like this, this right. beautiful song about friendship and growing older and looking back, but still not living in the past, appreciating it and looking toward the future because, you know, there's even more good times and good friends on the horizon. Yes, most definitely. I'm really glad he made that choice, too, because, you know, since Hold Your Fire, there's been some really pretty amazing things he's written. And, you know, Neil, we, it's always known how private he was, but he really wasn't in a way because and that's another reason why he res- I think why I was so moved when he passed was because he chose to let us into his life through his craft, which I think is really cool. Yeah. We got to know Neil by the songs he wrote, which in some ways that's really unique, I feel like, in the way that he did it. A song like Available Light. I mean, he's literally, I feel like he's kind of talking to us about something that he's feeling in a, such an artful way. I just wanted to try to try to highlight that, you know, that, that this band was just more than three hyperactive musicians that wrote really cool stuff that there was a lot of depth that we all understand, but, you know, maybe somebody that hasn't heard him before would see that. Well, that this is just beautiful songwriting. I've got a quote here from Neil. This is uh, about time stands still all through the seventies. Our lives were flying by. We spent so much time on the road. It became like a dark tunnel. You start to think about people you're neglecting friends and family. So the song is about stopping to enjoy that with a warning against too much looking back against getting nostalgic about the past. It's more a plea for the present. Wow. How does that resonate with you? I mean, I, I think, uh, as always, he kind of hits it right on the head. <laughs> um, yeah. you know, even that, that quote is very, very important. Uh, you know, I've never had to go through, you know, we, we don't in, in our organization, we don't deploy during the conflicts in the Middle East. This is before I got there, but they would go over maybe for, for two weeks with the USO, do like a holiday tour or something. But, you know, that's not a that's not a 12 month deployment. 
And all you can do in that situation is be in the present and be there in the present for your loved ones. This, that's your only choice, you know? So that was kind of another reason for choosing this is I, it, it could relate to kind of what we do. Again, it's universal. It can kind of be anything. He always artfully explains his songs better than we ever, we ever could. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my gosh. Um, and can you talk a little bit about the arrangement, how that sure. came about? No drums, but it's definitely the arrangement of it helps really mine and underpin the sad nature of the song, even though it's a, it's a, let's right. take a look at the now there, there is, it is a kind of a sad song in a mm -hmm. way. And I think that the, the arrangement of it just brings all of it to the top. All of the cream just comes right to the top. That's cool. Yeah. So I, I first kind of decided on the instrumentation. I, I knew that I'd really like to showcase a string quartet. You can get a lot out of that. So basically, it's basically just like a pretty standard chamber ensemble of piano, string quartet. And then I just decided to have very simple upright bass just for some low end, just to give some foundation to it. And then I just wanted two voices because I, I was hearing some harmonies on some of the on some of the lines. So the arrangement basically, I mean, it's the same structure as the original song. I decided right away not to try to, I didn't want to like replicate what they were doing with the, that just wouldn't make a lot of sense. So having somebody play that guitar riff exactly the same on a different instrument. So then I just started thinking about how to make it flow. So a lot of times when I'm starting an arrangement, I, I call it um, like graphing it or uh, it's like a big picture thing. So I just, I knew that by the time I got to summer's going fast, that had to be the climax. So it's essentially one big build to that lyric. So I just started messing around. I came up with at the beginning of it, there's a piano figure. That's kind of the guitar riff, the little right-hand piano figure. And that kind of happens all throughout the piece. And I've started just building it around that. The chord movement of the instruments is pretty much the same as the original you know i didn't want to like completely deconstruct the thing so it's like not related at all and there are if you listen if you were able to a b it there are so many references to the original recording there are some bass lines that happen that that getty actually plays what i did do in neil's absence is i did pay tribute to his drumming a little bit through the string quartet the part on the original right before they do the summer's going fast Neil has that really dramatic snare drum fill. And then they go into that mm -hmm. section. I did this really kind of, I built up to this really loud string descending line. And then we go into that. So that, that was my tribute to that drum fill to give them something dramatic that could live up to that moment. So I just tried to, I wanted to keep it that emotive thing that you talked about cherry that maybe slightly different vibe than the original but then i, I just tried to incorporate little music because you know for me as a rush fan and a musician i know these songs musically like very intimately like i could probably play like 50 rush songs from memory just sitting at the piano and figuring it out just because i've heard them so much so the string quartet like on the bridge where there's the amy mann like the mm -hmm. ooze and all that, they're actually playing Alex's guitar part. 
they're playing that and then i just took the emotion thing as far as i could and gave the violins this really soaring melody to play on the top of it i think another choice that i did make was and i had to think about is like am i gonna do the amy man time standstill and i ultimately decided not to because i just didn't think it needed to be there there were some comments on the YouTube channel that the band, you know, people like, where's the Amy man, you know? So what I did do is it's in the piano melody. Yeah. Which is also like what the synths play in the original, but I do pay tribute to that part. There's a solo violin on the last little, like, I guess I'll call it the pre-chorus or whatever. They actually play it right before that big buildup into summer's going fast. So they, they play her part. Matt Evans, he plays her part on the violin. And I just figured that would that would be enough. I just didn't think it was really necessary. And that was just a choice I guess I had to make. But then it would be a third vocalist. And it just just for that little part, it seemed like it may even distract a little bit from what, what was happening. And I wasn't originally going to sing on it. I was going to have one of our other vocalists sing on it. And it was her that said, you should sing on it. Because they all know that I sing, and I was like, "All right, those high B's are. I mean, those are high. <laughs> those are no joke." <laughs> so, I just, you know, I strapped on and I went for it. Uh, I mean, I I have a tenor voice, anyways. Like, I can get up there if, if I need. I mean, I couldn't do that all day, but um, I was also really excited to be doing it. So the adrenaline's kind of. So it was pretty easy to get up there that day. But that, you know, that was. Now looking back. I'm really glad I I was able to do it because I mean I'm paying tribute to the you know to him and those other two guys that have met so much so it was really cool to to do that. You can really feel the emotion in your voice and mm-hmm. in Chris's voice. Is Chris a big Rush fan too? The other vocalist? Yeah, he is, and uh, I mean Chris is one of these guys who he can sound, he can mimic, like he can he can sing exactly like Sting. If he wants to, it's like uncanny when he, he can sing a sting tune and it's like, whoa, I mean, it's, he's one of these guys that can really, he's, he's like a um, chameleon in a way. You can just find his way and he can sing jazz. He can sing alter bridge, you know, all that kind of real, <laughs> like he can just kind of, he can just kind of go wherever he needs to go. So that was really cool to have him there too. And what about the reaction you got from the video, Tim? Can you tell us about that? I haven't really uh, shared this with anybody really, but because this is of our Rush fandom here and we're kind of sharing in this. Sure. It came out on, what was it, Thursday, February 13th, like in the afternoon. I got a Facebook message from Neil's nephew. Wow. And he just said, uh, we just saw the video. Um, Carrie and Olivia saw the video. Uh, Neil's parents have seen the video. All of his, all of his relatives, his cousins, his sister, uh, and everybody is just—they can't believe you did this. Everybody is just so moved and touched, and so that was really amazing. Fast forward to the next day, Valentine's Day. I was playing a private, just Valentine's Day like jazz gig with a singer, and right before we're about to start, my phone—it's it. I've never had this before, but it was literally like 
ding, 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 like these text messages were coming right as I'm about to start playing. And so I look really quick and it's like, dude, have you seen Facebook? Russ just posted your video. Wow. I was like, oh my God. And it was the first <laughs> thing they posted since Neil died, which was amazing. So the weekend, just like at that point, it started kind of, I guess you would say going viral or whatever. On that Monday, I got a phone call from Michael, Neil's security and motorcycle partner mm. and his friend. And he just was basically telling me how much it meant to him. And just, he's like, we were so floored that this happened. And I'm sitting here going, you're floored. Like <laughs> <laughs> these guys have been my idol since I was a kid. Like, I, you know what I mean? But I just, I think this is cool just because we're all fans. And I, I just, I just thought I'd share this with you guys and to all the other fans. Cause it's it's pretty awesome. So about two weeks after the video came out, I got this in the mail. Dear Tim, it has been both uplifting and heartbreaking for us in the Rush family to see all the incredible tributes to Neil since his death. Each expression of grief attests to his impact and influence on so many people from so many walks of life. When your arrangement of time standstill came to our attention, we were overwhelmed by its power and emotional weight. A response shared by anyone who has watched the video. Chris Reddick and your vocal arrangements are sublime, and the performances by your colleagues are the perfect dynamic accompaniment. You all have honored Neil and us through the shared love of music that we are so lucky to carry in our souls, and for that we are humbly grateful. Please share Gettys and my gratitude and our deep respect with the members of Pershing Zone for breaking our hearts a little bit more and elevating our spirits to a new high. Sincerely, Alex Lyson. Wow. I, I'm speechless. Unbelievable. That was unbelievable to get that in the mail. That's amazing. As somebody who grew up with this band, I mean, and for him to take the time to do that. Yeah. You know, we all, we've all heard stories from, you know, even on the documentary, it was of, uh, the, the driver, I forget the driver's name, talking about, Alex celebrated his wedding with him and his wife. Just talking right. about how Alex, the nicest guy. And that was just, that was pretty dang cool. Yeah. That's great. What, what a great recognition too, from the, yeah. from the band. I just thought that would be cool for people to hear just that would appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. And you can count us among the people who were completely moved by the video. It is brilliantly done. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. On the Rush Fancast, Tim, we really appreciate it, and thank you so much for your service. And you have to come back and discuss available light one day with us. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Anytime, I'm. <laughs> anytime you need a correspondent, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> our our Rush man on the street. <laughs> Thanks, Tim. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. So, Jer, how amazing is it that Tim got a letter from Alex Lifeson unprompted? about his video. How great is that? Yeah, that's, that's, that's amazing. Considering that Alex found out his address, you know I mean? He went, he did the, did the extra work to find out Tim's address. So we could send them the email. Didn't have one of his office people do it. Didn't have an assistant do it. He did it so he could personally write him a letter. 
Yeah, I mean, that's how moved he was by it. And you can understand why. I mean, it is so emotional, so well done. Right. And Alex probably saw it like we did shortly after Neil passed away and probably couldn't hold back the tears, really. Right. It was it was one of the best covers that we've ever talked about. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And Tim is so knowledgeable and knows so much about music. I mean, we have to have him back to talk about Available Light, don't we? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I tell you, when I got in touch with him, he was excited to be on the podcast. He was like, a, he's a diehard Rush fan. So he was very excited to talk about Rush with us. Well, we'd be excited to have him back. That's for sure. You can find us on Twitter. We are at Rush Fancast. Instagram, find us at The Rush Cast. Email Jerry, The Rush Cast at gmail.com. Follow or subscribe via your favorite podcast app. Enjoy the baselines every week from Lex, even though today we're going to forego the baseline at the end of the podcast and play the full version of the U.S. Army Band's Time Stand Still. Jared, I'd like to enjoy your quote as well. Well, let's hope I can do it justice. <laughs> Time stands still. I'm not looking back, but I want to look around me now, see more of the people and the places that surround me now. As we get older, Jar, it becomes more and more apt, doesn't it? It does. Have a good one. See ya. I turn my back to the wind To catch my breath Before I start off again Driven on without a moment to spend To pass an evening with a drink and a friend I let my skin get too thin I'd like to pause No matter what I pretend Like some pilgrim who learns to transcend Learns to live as if each step was the end
Since then.